are listening to audio from Emmanuel Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more resources like this one, go to EmmanuelBirmingham.com. If you have your Bibles, our text today is from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And it reads this way, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, church. Uh, no, for us at our house, um, things with three little kids are escalating as the fall is approaching and they start preschool uh, here in a week. I know for many of you, you are maybe a day away from your kids starting school or a couple days away and things are getting kind of crazy. Some of y'all, for maybe for the first time, are sending your kids away to school for the first time. Jessica, sorry. Um, and if you're feeling it, like you're feeling that, that weight, we want to pray for y'all. Um, parents, maybe this is not your first radio, and you're like, yes, please take my kids back to school. Um, we want to pray for you too and uh, rejoice with you. Um, but uh, but it's, it's getting wild. I mean, the fall is here, which is kind of crazy to think about. I mean, it's August, and so um, new school year starts soon. And, and with that, we are starting a new sermon series today. Um, taking a look from now until the first Sunday of Advent uh, at the epistle of 1 Peter. And we titled this sermon series, uh, A Living Hope for Life in Exile, um, for a variety of reasons that we'll unpack over the next few weeks. Uh, So for the next handful of months, uh, we are going to be working our way very slowly and methodically through 1 Peter. Uh, It's a really pertinent, timeless letter, and we're going to let the Holy Spirit just teach us what the Apostle Peter was writing, what it looks like to live as exiles in a land that is not our home, um, but to also be, have our identity in Christ as we live in this foreign land. Now, this graphic may look a little familiar to you. Um, the sermon series, at least uh, for the first few weeks of the sermon series, may sound a little familiar to you. Because before I came here, uh, back in February, you guys had started going through 1 Peter. You may not, may or may not remember that. Uh, I can't remember what I preached like two weeks ago. So you may not remember that. Um, but if it does sound familiar to you, that's why. That's why it sounds familiar to you. And I'm so grateful for elders who started that process a few months ago. But we're going to be starting over. All right. So we're going to be starting from the beginning because it's good to remind ourselves uh, of the gospel. It's good to remind ourselves of of the situation going on in 1 Peter that Peter was writing to, and then how that applies to us today. So starting afresh from the beginning, this epistle written by Peter the Apostle. Peter the Apostle, one of the first chosen by Jesus to follow him. If you read through the Gospels, Matthew chapter 4, one of the, if not the most, prominent leader in the early church, if you read through the book of Acts. I mean, even in Matthew 16, Jesus tells Peter that it's upon him and his confession that Christ would build his church. Pretty big deal. Pretty big guy. But on the flip side of all of that, the same, first, the same Peter coin here, on the other side of that is a Peter who tended to react in the moment, make a lot of bold claims, only to find that those claims and behaviors were hollow when put to the test. If you read through the gospel accounts, 
It's the Peter who denied Christ three times, if you remember that story, only to find, instead of accusation and condemnation from Christ, restoration and redemption as he sat with Jesus around a charcoal fire after Christ had risen from the dead in John 21. This is the Peter who was filled with the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 and preached boldly the first Christian sermon, seeing 3,000 people come to faith in Christ in one day. It's the same Peter who throughout the book of Acts possessed supernatural power to heal, even to raise people from the dead. Acts chapter 5 talks about how the work of the Spirit to heal through Peter was so great that even if his shadow fell on people, they would be healed from their diseases. He's a leader in the Jerusalem church, but he didn't let his sole ministry be to the Jews, but he actually preached to Jews and Gentiles alike. He was the first person to lead a Gentile convert to Christ in Acts chapter 10 with Cornelius, the Roman centurion, who then in turn led his entire family to Christ in Acts chapter 10. Peter would lead the church through cultural hostility and strife, even persecution later in his life, and eventually Peter would be killed for his faith around AD 64 under the reign of Nero, the emperor of Rome. A tradition has that he was crucified upside down because he didn't feel like he was worthy to die in the same way that his Savior died, right side up on a cross. So Peter has a wide foundation of understanding many aspects of the Christian life. He knows what it means to fail. He also knows what it means to receive the mercy of Christ at his lowest point. He knows what it means to falter in fear. But he also knows what it means to be called out in sin and restored by faithful brothers, Galatians chapter 2, when he is in sin. He knows what it means to see great flourishing in ministry. 3,000 people come to faith in Christ in one day. But he also knows what it means to experience persecution for following Jesus. Harsh hostility and opposition for seeking to obey Christ. He's very fit to teach us what it means to follow Jesus to fall upon the unfailing grace and mercy of Jesus in times where we fall short or in times where we flourish in our walks with Christ. And this is the Peter the Apostle, Apostle, title there, one of the twelve that then became eleven, that then became twelve again uh, in Acts chapter 1. And that title, Apostle, right there in verse 1, possesses unique authority. These twelve men had God given authority to speak and write on the same level as the Old Testament prophets. And then the primary role of an apostle, of Peter, was to bear witness to the character and the work and the words of Jesus, whom they had spent three years with during his life on earth. Peter's an apostle, as an apostle, possessed the credentials and authority to speak and write this letter, and his words ought to be heeded by us. It's on a smaller level to be like um, a professor or a therapist that have their name on the office door or outside their practice with a bunch of letters after their name that you're like, I don't know what that means, but I'm sure it has something to do with what you're doing right now. Um, giving Those letters give authority and credentials so that the person you're going to see for whatever you need to go see them for understand what they're talking about, that they are trained, that they are a fit for the work ahead of them. So Peter the Apostle... He's giving his credentials, so to speak. He is one of the twelve. He is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Therefore, he can be trusted and listened to and obeyed. 
And Peter's main concern in writing this letter, which we're going to come back to over and over and over again. So if you're taking notes, the primary point of the letter of 1 Peter is this, that Peter's writing to give believers hope, encouragement, and confidence as they live and suffer in a world that's not their home. That he's writing, I'm going to say it again because it's important, he's writing to give believers hope, encouragement, and confidence as they live and suffer, live and suffer in a world that is not their home. And it's important to define the type of suffering Peter's talking about in this letter and the type of suffering we're going to be talking about throughout this letter. This is not like general suffering, all right? Like just the reality of living in a world that's broken, full of sickness and death and pain and struggle. That's not the kind of suffering Peter's talking about. Everybody experiences that, Christian and non-Christian alike. We all are acquainted with suffering in that way. And it's also not the suffering that comes as a result of sin. And the consequences for bad decisions, sinful decisions, contrary to the way God wants you to live your life, that's not the suffering Peter's talking about here. But the suffering that Peter is mainly discussing in this letter is suffering for the sake of righteousness. Suffering because of obedience. Suffering for following Jesus. At the same time, at this time in the history of the early church, outright physical persecution of the church had not yet begun to happen on a wide scale. When he's writing this letter, it's probably around 80, 62, or 63. But there was a growing hostility and social ostracism that came with following Jesus. You would be outcast oftentimes, ridiculed, made fun of, cast aside, not taken seriously. And so that's what Peter's talking about here. And given that description of the reason the letter was written to address these things, it's not difficult to understand why this letter has been so pertinent throughout the history of the church and to us today. You know, throughout the last 2,000 years and even today, followers of Christ in various places have suffered greatly for following Jesus. We could recount story after story after story all afternoon of men and women standing firm in the face of imminent suffering and death, taking great risk to meet together, to obey the commands of Christ together, to share the gospel with all the nations. All those things carried with it risk and suffering and death for many of them. And even for us now in our current cultural climate, I'm not saying we're close to persecution and death or anything like that at all, but social ostracism and hostility are growing towards people that really, truly seek to follow Jesus according to his word. You know, because we're not full-blown physical suffering right now for our faith, and I pray we don't, honestly, in our country. I love the freedoms we have here in America. But we can almost even more identify with the recipients of this letter because they're not, at this point, fully, full-blown being persecuted and suffering for their faith. But they are being ridiculed. They are being cast aside. They are being ostracized for their Faith And Peter's writing to encourage them to cling to the faith. And he's framing up for them a theology of suffering that will undergird their life in this broken, fallen world on which they are exiles. So Peter, writing to scattered believers, Jew and Gentile alike, all through Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, he's writing to these people, and from the outset, he begins to ground their identities in relation to God, a vertical grounding here, their identities in relation to God, but also their identities in relation to the world, horizontal. 
And he does that here in the first two verses. So let's read this again. For the remainder of our time, we're going to ground ourselves in the reality of who God is, who he has called us to be, and then who we are in relation to this world. All right? So, 1 Peter 1, verses 1 and 2. Let's read this again. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. So two words in that first verse, two words that define who we are as believers in this world. And I pray that these two words are become so ingrained in our minds and in our identities and in our hearts that we'll instinctually always think of ourselves this way. And those two words are these, elect exiles. Elect exiles. We are elect exiles. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be an elect exile? And why is that so important for us as believers? Well, there are three things that those two words communicate to us, teach us about our identity as believers in this world. First, first, Peter is drawing continuity between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament. Or in other words, I frame it up like this, God's people have always been God's people. That God's people have always been God's people. You know, there's some some systems of theology out there that seek to draw this just vast discontinuity between Israel and the church, between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament, that in the grand narrative of God's salvific plans towards his people, that God had one people in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, he had a new people, this what they call the church age, or a parenthesis that involves Jew and Gentile now as God's people. But that this church age is temporary, and that one day God will turn his affections back to his people in the Old Testament, namely the nation of Israel. So there's this sharp discontinuity and contrast between these two groups of people according to this system of theology. And they seek to pit sometimes those two groups of people against one another in God's affections. But I would argue, I would argue that the scripture as a whole and that 1 Peter here, 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 1, is beginning to set the stage in the very first verse, Peter here, that there's actually more continuity than discontinuity an understanding of God's people. That the terms elect exiles that he's using here in verse 1, those terms are actually used to describe the people of God in the Old Testament. In places like Deuteronomy 7, 6, Isaiah 45, 2, Genesis 23, 4, Psalm 19, 12. These are a variety, a few of a variety of places where the words elect or exile are used to describe the people in the Old Testament, God's people in the Old Testament. And here, Peter's using the same terms to describe the church. He's building this argument that God's people have always been God's people. That just as in the Old Testament, even though Israel, ethnic Israel, made up the majority of the people of God in the Old Testament, that there was still provision made for Gentiles to come into the people of God. And just as it was then, so it is now, that in the church, Jew and Gentile alike have been given a way to be included into the people of God. 
that believing Jews and Gentiles by grace through faith have always been the people of God and are the people of God today. So, the church has not replaced Israel, but rather, God's people have always been Jews and Gentiles alike, together as one people. And the New Testament gives us fuller understanding of that. So, that's, so what, what does this mean for us? Why is that important? What does this mean for us uh, here, right now? What it means, primarily is that all the promises made by God in the Old Testament towards His people are not only made to one nation called Israel, but they're made to us. That the Old Testament, all the promises there are our promises. That their hopes are our hopes. That they are for, all those promises are for us and for our children forever, just as they were for them and their children forever. The Old Testament's not just a book for one group of people at one time, but it's for us today, right now. That when we read through our Bible plans, the Old Testament, we're like, what does this have to do with me? That any promise God makes to his people in the Old Testament is a promise made to his people in the New Testament. Because God's people have always been God's people. So that's the first thing, all right? It's the first thing. Second, second, Peter's teaching us about our identities with these words, elect exiles. And the second way he does that is using this word, elect all right, elect. And what he's teaching us is that as the people of God, we have been chosen by God. As the people of God, we have been chosen by God. That our salvation, our identities as Christians were not arbitrary or by chance, but rather we were chosen in God's sovereignty to follow Christ with our lives before the world began. And this word uh, elect or chosen, it actually modifies the next three clauses in verse 2. And each of these three clauses involves a member of the Trinity. So you see the Trinity acting on behalf of our salvation, that Jesus didn't just do all the work, that the Father was involved, the Son was involved, and the Spirit was involved. Excuse me. So first... First clause here, we are chosen by the foreknowledge of God the Father. We are chosen by the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now this word foreknowledge, uh, it doesn't mean that God looked into the future and saw uh, how we would respond to Christ and then he saw our response and then chose us based on our response. That's not what foreknowledge means. I mean, you think about that, that would actually tend to be towards works righteousness that I made the right decision, and therefore God chose me based off of my right decision. That's not what foreknowledge means. God, oh, sorry, let me back up. And foreknowledge is not the idea that God knew a little bit of information about you before you came into existence. That's not what foreknowledge means either. But foreknowledge rather means, biblically, that God's election of his people fit within his sovereign plans and purposes for this world before creation began. That he personally knew each and every person he would choose intimately. That he knew everything about you and he would take you, us men and women who have trusted Christ, he would take us and he would mold us into a collective people for his glory. Regardless of what your own personal beliefs are around you know, election, chosen, all those, that language, regardless of what your personal beliefs are on that, Peter's not writing these things to spark debate. This is verse 2, 
all right? He's not writing to spark debate. There's a time and a place for that. But Peter's writing to demonstrate that the people of God are chosen and adopted on purpose. On purpose. That they are elected to call God Father. That it was not arbitrary. But you were chosen on purpose for His glory. That God knew everything about you. He knew the ways you would bring Him joy and He knew the ways you would grieve His heart. And He chose you out of His own grace towards you. Why did God choose you? Because he wanted to. Because he's God and he wanted to. There was nothing in you that directed his affection more towards you apart from his decision to choose us. That should not cause us to have pride. It should cause us to have great humility. To know that there was nothing in us apart from his sovereign grace towards us that saved us. So we are chosen first by the foreknowledge of God the Father. Second, second clause here. We are chosen to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. We're chosen to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Our entire existence as believers has lived within the reality that we are being set apart and maturing by the Spirit. That God is consecrating us in this world. Consecrating meaning He's setting us apart. He has set us apart and is setting us apart in this world for His purposes. He's making us more like Christ by His Spirit. You know, there's a, this is a big reason we are called here exiles and foreigners also, which we'll come back to in a second. But if you think about being, if our vertical identities are rooted in God's election towards us, then being chosen out of this world by Him automatically makes you an alien, a foreigner, an exile. Automatically. The Father is the choosing agent here. The Spirit is the affecting agent here. God chooses us, and the Spirit sets us apart and changes us. It's the Holy Spirit that brings about our new birth. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us new hearts and new desires for the glory of God. It is the Holy Spirit that takes the means of God's grace for our good. Being in the Word, prayer, fasting, the community of faith. It's the Holy Spirit that takes these things and uses them to conform us in the likeness of Christ. It's the Holy Spirit that undergirds us with strength to live as exiles on this earth, as different than those around us, even if that brings ostracism and ridicule. It's the Holy Spirit. So we're chosen in the foreknowledge of God the Father, chosen to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and then third, we are chosen to be obedient to the Son. The text actually says... For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. That phrase, um, sprinkling with his blood, it should take our minds to Exodus 24, to the covenant establishing ceremony between God and his people in the Old Testament. So, Exodus 19 through 23, you have God giving his people the law, Mount Sinai, if you remember that, Ten Commandments, Exodus 20, all those things, giving them the law. And then in Exodus 24, he's saying, now this, I've given you the law. This is how you are to, to live in obedience to me as you go into the land. And in verse 7 of Exodus 24, the people respond, all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses then sacrifices an animal, takes the blood, sprinkles the blood on the people, which is kind of weird. I'm glad we don't do that anymore. But he sprinkles the blood on the people. And the point here 
the point here of Peter using this phrase and drawing our minds back to that, not only is it to draw more continuity between the Old Testament people of God and New Testament people of God, which is fucked up, but it's that Christ has now shed his blood, that he has sprinkled his people with his blood, so to speak, that he now seeks to bring about obedience in his people after his own example, that just as Jesus obeyed the will of his Father even to the point of death, that the people of God under the new covenant now will too respond. That our response will be all the words the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. And the ceremony Peter alludes to in the Old Testament, the people declare, declare their obedience to God and the blood of the covenant is applied to them. <clears throat> the same is true for us. The blood of Christ, the new covenant has covered us. And so we seek to be obedient to Christ and all that we do. And this example comes from Christ, right? Following the will of his Father. It's a theme that will come out throughout this letter. Christ is our example in obedience and in suffering. Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, so you too, you, me and you, chosen out from among men to be the peculiar people of God must expect to be partakers of the cross, for the servant is not greater than his Lord. The way of Christ in this world, the way of those chosen by God for the purposes of God in this world is the way of the cross. It's the way of self-denial. It's the way of ostracism. It's the way of the outcast. It's the way of suffering. It's the way of death. If Christ suffered, how much more shall we be prepared to suffer? As the master goes, so go his servants. Which leads to the second marker of who we are. Not only are we vertically, we're the elect of God, but horizontally, horizontally, we are exiles in this world. People of God are exiles in this world, elect exiles. You cannot be chosen by God and be citizens of this world. Those two things can't coexist together. The more we're comfortable here, the more we feel at home here in this physical world we call earth, Birmingham, Alabama, the more our thoughts and behaviors and actions are primarily driven towards decisions for the here and the now, not the eternal, the less we're acting like the chosen people of God. And this is a struggle for all of us, all of us. I mean, I'm thinking about like all the security I've put into my new house, all right? Like, I just want to be in my house, X, Y, and Z. Well, my house is going to break down and disappoint me at some point, right? Hopefully later rather than sooner, but it will because it's a faulty home that will one day decay. But if I'm finding all of my sense of home in my home and not in the fact that I'm an elect exile in this world called out by God and I have a home I'm going to, I am not living as a person of God in this world. Now I want us to be careful though. I want us to be careful when we think of ourselves as exiles. You know, I am uh, Oftentimes, when I've heard sermons about being exiles, whether it be like Jeremiah 29 or this text in particular, um, oftentimes the preachers tend to talk about uh, being exiles on earth, sojourners, aliens, in a way that uh, just makes people think, well, I'm just passing through this world that's going to hell in a handbasket, right? I'm just kind of sitting in this cosmic waiting room, just kind of twiddling my thumbs and, and just waiting to get to the other place and just talking about how bad this place is, you know, while I'm waiting to get to this other place. And that's not what Peter would communicate to us in this epistle. That's not what he's talking about. We have a responsibility 
here as exiles in this world. We don't sit around and twiddle our thumbs and complain about everything. That's not what we do as the people of God. But a part of the responsibility is to seek the good of our city. It's to be faithful within our culture. To bloom where we're planted, so to speak. Because God has planted us here. For this time in our lives, he has planted us in Birmingham, Alabama. Out of his own sovereign grace towards us. You know, there are a lot of responses we can have towards the world around us. We can be tempted to withdraw from the culture. Just, we're just going to remove ourselves out of it because it's so bad out there, but we forget that the problems are in here. Not out there. They're in here. Right? That's one of our responses. Sometimes we're tempted to, we're tempted to assimilate to culture, to take on the culture more than the ways of Christ into our lives. That's a temptation for sure. Oftentimes we may be tempted to be just outright hostile towards culture. Just ripping culture to shreds every chance we get makes us not really fun to be around all the time. And there are appropriate times, listen, there are appropriate times for each of those responses. Right? There are times that things in this world should be condemned. Right? There, are times, there are times that we should remove ourselves from things in this world. Those are gestures. They're not called for us. They're not meant to be postures. Does that make sense? There's gestures. But God in his word has told his people, be people of peace within places where I have put you. This is the theme Peter will develop all throughout this letter, is how to be people of peace within the culture God has planted us in. So we're going to be drawing that out over the next few weeks. So just hold on to that. But then Peter finishes this introduction to the letter, as any good first century Jewish Christian would. And he says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. May grace and peace abound towards you. I love this. A lot of epistles have kind of something along these lines right at the end of the, end of the introduction. I love it because it's really, it's really two prayers Peter's praying here. And these are two prayers we need to adopt here at Emmanuel Church. First, we want to pray that God's grace be amplified in us. That God's grace be amplified in us. Uh, Charles Spurgeon writes in second Spurgeon quote. He says this. Do not be satisfied with the grace that you already have. Be thankful for it, but ask for the divine multiplication of it. Regard the grace that you have already received as being like the boy's loaves and fishes. Expect that Christ will continue to multiply it for you and for thousands of others round about you. So we appreciate and are thankful for God's grace in us and we pray for more to be expressed and extended towards those around us. As the people of God, we ought to always be stirring up reminders of grace in one another. Always. This unmerited, unearned, free love of God towards us in Christ should always be coming out towards one another and how we treat one another. When the world begins to hate us, we remind ourselves that we are loved by the one that ultimately matters. That our gracious Savior, Jesus Christ, has elected us out of his free sovereign love towards us. And we long for others in this body and in this community to experience the gracious love of Christ as well. May it be amplified in us and through us, among one another and out there. And then the second prayer here is that may God's peace be pursued by us. May God's peace be pursued by us. The shalom of God, the peace of God. You know, Peter uses this word peace in two other places in 1 Peter to describe 
the content of the salvation we've received, that it's the gospel of peace, right? It's a salvation of peace. Uh, But the peace Peter's talking about here is not just a ceasing of hostilities between two parties. It is that, but it's more than that. We've been reconciled to God by Jesus Christ. There was There were two warring parties, God and us and our sin, and Christ has reconciled us, brought peace among the two parties. We're now adopted by God as his sons and daughters. But the peace Peter's talking about is that, but it's more than that. It's this peace, the way the Old Testament uses the word peace, the shalom of God. It's this positive outpouring of God's blessings and favor and kindness towards us. It's not just a negative ceasing of hostilities, but a positive flow, outflow of God's heart towards us in Jesus. And for us, when we are seeking, pursuing peace among one another, we're not just seeking to go to somebody and go, hey, man, you good? I'm good. You good? I'm good. That's not just it, all right? It's to treat that person with the same kindness and blessings that we've been treated uh, by Jesus Christ uh, in our salvation. We desire God to bestow all his goodness and his wholeness and his blessings upon the person we are at war with and we're reconciled to, not just have a cease of that war, right? So our pursuit of peace here at Emmanuel Church, our pursuit of peace is an active endeavor where we are always looking to bless one another. We want peace to be multiplied among us, that if there is strife, we want to bless one another, Not just seek to end the strife, but seek to go above and beyond and bless that other person we were once in strife with. So to live live in the land of exile, church, we're going to need to be pursuing peace together. Peace. You know, Satan would love nothing more than to bring division and disunity and strife and frustration and forgetfulness among us. He'd love that. But we amplify grace among us and we pursue peace towards one another in this body for the glory of God and the good of each other. So I'm going to kind of close with with just two kind of admonitions that are our strong words, just two things for you to consider. One, you know, we take communion here every single week, every week. And we will take communion every week until I'm not the pastor here anymore. So for the next 30 years, we're going to take communion every week, all right? Um, And there's an aspect of communion that we don't talk about a lot And it's kind of this Matthew 5 picture where someone brings a gift to the altar, right? And Jesus says, hey, if you bring your gift to the altar and you know that your brother has something against you, leave your gift at the altar. Go and be reconciled to your brother. Then come and offer your gift. You know, I think that, and listen, I'm not specifically mentioning any specific thing. If there is something out there, two warring parties right now, please let me know. I'd love to pray for you. Um, I don't know of any, but I do know that because we exist as redeemed yet sinful human beings, that within our body there will sometimes be strife. There will sometimes be hardship. There will sometimes be two people or two groups of people that need to be reconciled together. And so I ask you, every single week when we take communion together, before you come and take communion, if there is, if there is strife between you and one other person, or a couple and a couple, or a kid and a kid, whatever the case may be, go be reconciled. First, and then come and take communion. Be reconciled, seek the good of each other, pursue peace together, and then come and celebrate the gift God has given us in communion. That's the first thing just to have you consider. You know, I want us to be, 
I want us to respond to the table, but I want us to respond maybe a bit more slowly sometimes. Not every time, but sometimes. Let's just consider ourselves, consider our hearts, consider our attitudes towards one another, and then come and take communion. That's the first thing. Second thing, this is uh, a platform, um, but it can also be an altar. Um, I would love, you know, I think about altars in the Old Testament. You know, altars were places where things came to die, right? You would lay up your sacrifice on the altar out of thanksgiving. You would lay it out of uh, of just sin, right? Things that have to be sacrificed for sin. You would bring abundance to the altar from your harvest, X, Y, and Z. But this is an altar where maybe, maybe, at some points during our response time, you just need to come and do business with the Lord, right? There may be times where you just need to come and you need to kneel down at this place and just bring something that needs to die. Bring something that needs to be laid here. Bring burdens that need to be laid before Christ. You know, I I remember in the church I grew up in, in Mississippi, um, every Sunday we'd have people come down to the front, not to talk with somebody, just just to kneel down here. And just pray and seek the Lord to do something in their heart. Um, I want to invite you as well to do that. Again, we may not have people do that for the next three months. But I want you to know, it's always open for you. That when we come to respond to the table, maybe you just need to come up here and do some business with the Lord. And then go to the table. Right? And so, I say all those things. Because I want us to be a people of grace and a people of peace towards one another. That when we see people come up and pray, it may be good to walk up, put your arm around them, just sit there with them, pray with them. Tears should be shed on a regular basis when we think about taking communion. We think about the grace of the Lord here. When we remember our sin and how much God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And maybe sometimes you just had a rough week. You just need to come and lay it down before the Lord and be renewed in your commitment to the Lord. So there's just two things to consider uh, that have a little bit to do with the sermon, more just things I was thinking about and processing this week when I was thinking about grace and peace. So in light of that, I'm going to pray for us, and then we are going to come and take communion. So I'm going to pray for us, and, uh, and we'll go from there. Let's pray together. Father, I do praise you for your faithfulness to us. I praise you, Lord, that if we were to stop and to pause and to consider all the ways you have displayed your faithfulness and kindness to us, even in the last 24 hours, we will be floored at just how much favor you've bestowed upon us, even when we weren't even aware of it. And I do thank you, Lord, that your greatest demonstration of faithfulness and kindness to us was Christ Jesus that you made promises to your people in the Old Testament that you had every intention of keeping because you're a faithful God. And you kept them all in Jesus. That you sent Christ to come and pave the way to adopt a people for yourself. To pay the penalty for the sins of, of your people on the cross so that we can be freed from our hostility towards you and your hostility towards us and be reconciled together, but not just reconciled, but in a place where you are 
just freely pouring out your blessings and grace upon us every single day. Now, you didn't just stop with our justification. They didn't just stop when we were legally declared righteous before you, but you went a step further and you adopted us as sons and daughters of the King. That you carried us to your table, that you brought us into your presence based off nothing we had done, but all because of your kindness and your sovereign grace towards us. And we thank you, Lord, that this was not a disjointed act of one member of the Trinity. But the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, you were all doing this work in us, and you're still doing a work in us now. That you are of one mind in your love and joy and kindness towards us and in us. And so, Lord, I pray that we don't forget that. May we be a people of grace. May we be a people of peace. That not just wait for these things to come, but we pursue it together. We seek peace. Don't just wait for peace, but we're actively seeking peace with one another, and in this community. We love you, Lord, and we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.